Hi, everybody, and welcome to the November edition of the Third Fridays podcast. It's a little bit different this month because Thanksgiving and Black Friday actually takes the place of Third Friday. So the Third Friday of this month, the 15th, will actually have hearings. Uh, it's a little bit different compared to our normal uh, schedule, but I'm hoping that you're still taking time out of your cases to listen to me uh, dribble-drabble on about some cool legal topic but in case that you're not, I wanted to bring on a guest that has a loyal viewership that will spike the numbers uh, of this particular episode. So I wanted to welcome uh, my guest this month. Uh, he is Christopher Major uh, of Lois Law Firm. Uh, he of the $35 undershirts. Welcome <laughs> to the show, Chris. Shameless plug for Tommy John. Uh, well, you said the brand name, not me. <laughs> Well, I had to justify the $35 undershirt portion, but uh, yeah, I believe this is my thirty, uh, my fifth podcast appearance at this point, and uh, I think I've acquired a bit of a fan base, and you know, we should boost the viewership. Okay. Well, I'll be checking the numbers to make sure if you just, just so, you know, if there's a sixth in the offing, then, you know, you'll get it. But uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what this, what this podcast really is, uh, and what it's become because in the last year we've tried to really uh, mirror our 101 level webinar series uh, in New York, right? So every third Monday of the month, you'll get that webinar. You register for it. You see Greg Lois's beautiful face, sometimes mine as well. Uh, and this podcast is designed to be the 201 level accompaniment to the topics of that same month. So if you are registered, you will see uh, how to Expo how to, how to analyze the exposure in your claims. And what's always interesting from a podcast like this where we talk about defending from day one is the things that you do from day one truly impact the indemnity and medical exposure you have when you finally settle the claim on the last day. But you don't get to see that. You don't see it happen, like the fruits of your labor, until the, the claim is actually settled. And, and even then, it's really hard to pinpoint you know, this settlement value was dictated because of what we did on day one. I'm bringing you on today, Chris, because it there, there's another aspect of what we do here, right? So um, some of our clients know about it, and they've used us and, and gotten some great results because of the impact we're making in different areas outside of the four corners of a worker's compensation claim, right? So give us a little bit of a, I guess, a primer or maybe a... Uh, Synopsis, uh, ooh, if you there will. There you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> that's that's like really the uh, foreshadowing of the rest of this podcast when Chris brings out his dictionary big words. Oh my God, do I? <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's let's uh, let's give him a little taste of, of of what we do here at Lois to really separate ourselves uh, as a true full service law firm. Right. So to a certain extent, this requires thinking about things from a different perspective. You know, there's a tendency when you're doing legal work and particularly legal defense work to confine yourself to a finite number of tactics in your tool belt. And, you know, they're the standard ones that everyone's heard of and that every defense firm employs. And those being your denials and defenses from the outset or your IMEs to push permanency or get the claimant off the total disability rate or, you know, raising fraud, surveillance and investigation. All of those standard things we do to reduce exposure and push a claim toward closure. But uh, something that we like to view here simultaneously from, you know, 30,000 foot view is the concept of risk transfer. And, you know, the 
well, risk transfer first, I should say, refers to the concept that if somebody else caused the claimant's injury, the workers' comp employer and carrier should not be responsible for paying for it. And risk transfer is being able to pass some of our exposure off to that third party. And, you know, the example I would use to sort of make the point a little more poignantly is if you're able to really settle a case for $50,000 and, you, you know, you get in and you get out and you do it very quickly – there's another case that settles for $100,000, but you get $50,000 back from a third-party suit. Those cases are worth the same at the end of the day. And so there's almost two different metrics for measuring exposure in workers' comp claims. There's time from intake to closure, and then there's the balance sheet, the hypothetical balance sheet, which is, you know, are you in the red or are you in the black at the end of the day? And that's where the concept of risk transfer comes in, and it's something – we are fully capable of assessing from the day the file comes in. Right. So that's, that's a great point here because, uh, you know, we usually don't use that term balance sheet in you know, what we do, uh, but it's a good actual, it's a good actual visual of how we view uh, the, the really end line of, of providing value to our clients. Right. So talk about uh, what, uh, we do, and, and maybe you specifically, when a workers' compensation claim comes in, how do we uh, assess risk transfer? So to a certain extent, there's predictability. There's uh, a number of fact patterns that let's just call them red flags, alarm bells, whatever you want to call them. There's a number of things that just should set your brain ringing saying, wait a minute, there might be someone else on the hook here. And I think the analogy you used earlier was, should you be suing someone is kind of the question you should be asking. And um, right. if this were you, would you be suing you, someone? Would you be suing someone? Right. So uh, these are your slip and fall and trip and falls where you might have a claim against the property owner, the landlord, or the maintenance company that left the puddle on the floor even. Uh, that one actually happens rather frequently. Motor vehicle accident, self-explanatory. Somebody ran the red light and T-boned your claimant. That person can be sued. Uh, products liability, guys working, you know, uh, a machine explodes up in his face. It's probably not supposed to do that. So uh, that is, you know, a viable suit against possibly the manufacturer and everyone in the di distribution chain. The Actually, seller. if the machine intended to do that, you'd still have a suit. Right. Unless it was, you know, a grenade in warfare, I imagine. That, okay. that, then it served its intended purpose. Give me that case. Give me that workers' <laughs> comp case. I'll call the uh, grenade in as a defense witness. Yeah, I think that might be a uh, federal court action, I would, <laughs> I would imagine. But, um, yeah, those are, those are some of the examples of the red flag alarm bell cases and that when they come in through the door, you should really, really be thinking about the possibility of risk transfer. Construction accidents, another very common one, especially especially because New York is one of the few states in the country that still uses the uh, scaffold law, fall from height on a construction site or getting hit with a falling brick on a construction site. It's strict liability sometimes. So, Right. And, and, you know, the use of the air quotes with scaffold law doesn't intend that it doesn't intend to give you the idea that it doesn't exist. That's a real thing. It is. Have, it is. Right? It, it is a thing. It's just been <laughs> just largely your... abolished everywhere. But, you know, <laughs> one of the least friendly uh, carrier states in the country well there you go uh welcome <clears throat> to new york right uh what we do and how you've eloquently described that uh is actually consistent with defend from day one right i mean uh i fa have a fake counter every episode where we talk about how many times am i saying that phrase but in actuality it is 
very difficult to see it in a concrete way where you're uh, taking a file in and assessing risk transfer because it's not necessarily a direct link between what you do in that arena versus how you close a file. Right. right. So take us I guess take us take us down that road, right? So what what do we do in risk transfer that in incentivizes a party to close or uh, pushes us closer to that goal? Right. So uh, it does require shifting the perspective ever so slightly because there's a tendency to get bogged down in the concept of, of winning and losing. And that's something that you see very commonly in the adversarial process. But I mean, yes, everyone loves a good win. I'm sure you love a good win as much as I do. But there's another consideration to be had, which is, you know, the hypothetical balance sheet that we brought up. And, you know, one of the things to consider is the statute of limitations in New York and New Jersey. So New York has a three-year personal injury statute. New Jersey has two. You could be the best darn comp attorney in the world. You could be Christian Cesar. Ooh, tugging <laughs> at the heartstrings, man. That's just that's that's going to get you that sixth episode. <laughs> so you could uh, you could close your workers' comp claim in six months and really knock it out of the park. And the claimant thereafter has two and a half years to do something, but for the lovely statutory right of subrogation under Section 29 in New York and Section 40 in New Jersey. And that is the powerful assignment of right concept. And what's interesting is that it's almost like a shortened period of action for carriers. In New Jersey, it's a year. If the year goes by without the claimant filing suit, we can hit them with the Section 40F notice. They got 10 days to bring a suit. If they don't, guess who gets to file a subrogated complaint? New York, same concept, six months after the awarding of compensation or one year after the date of loss. And this is always, always, always worth doing if you have the opportunity because worst case scenario, the claimant gets the Section 29.2 or Section 40F notice and they go, oh, I might have a third party case. Let me finally do something about it and go out and get an attorney. Oh, you're telling me I can make more money? Yeah. Best case scenario the other the third party defense carrier dials you up and says i don't want to deal with this how much money for this to go away and believe me it does happen in gl cases and uh you get to secure your reimbursement and you know believe it or not the claimant has no say in that settlement you can affect it without their consent and you're not dealing with your one-third reduction for cost of litigation because you fronted the cost of litigation so that's actually a very very key point right Fronting the cost of litigation early and not getting hit with it on the back end, right? We see so many times where the third-party suit is initiated by the claimant in a civil action. And now you're facing really uh, an assessment of cost of litigation that you have no predictability over, right? right? So I, I know that's a very abstract concept, and we could probably talk – uh, for another hour about you know cost of litigation and, and it's like inception and, and the true soapbox na box nature of like how this is a really like you know arbitrary uh, <laughs> I, I I was gonna use a way worse word and I stopped myself because I couldn't think of a, a word that more adequately described the bad word that I was about to use but thank you uh, but yes like, I, I think one of the other points that you know to tie in sort of what you were talking about at the beginning is you know what we do here with Lois Law Firm is this is a comprehensive defense practice so 
if you think about it, there's almost a synergistic effect to subrogating the complaint and filing it on behalf of the carrier and simultaneously defending the workers' compensation claim. Because whereas, you know, the third-party attorney would normally issue subpoenas and have to obtain all these medical records and all this other stuff, we are actively defending a workers' compensation claim and are already privy to the same information as the workers' compensation carrier. In other words, yes, there are costs associated with written discovery, and yes, you're going to want to depose the defendants at some point and all the other standard civil litigation stuff, but realistically, the cost you're talking about for maybe even just soliciting a settlement demand is the cost of filing a complaint. And it's always worth it as a comp carrier to try at the very least. That's a great point too. I, I mean, think about the cases we have where we have to keep following up with, with the civil court docket system or uh, the attorneys involved in the civil action, like just pestering them for a status update and what, how close are you to settlement. Having another hand in that pot really allows us to manipulate a result that we otherwise would not have been able to do. Right, and we control the docket that we otherwise would be passively staring at, waiting for something to happen. And that's that's a tool that is, frankly, somewhat underutilized in the practice. Uh, Someone, it's absolutely <laughs> underutilized. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's it shortens that amount of time where you're sitting around waiting for the claimant or petitioner to do something. And we absolutely have an inviolable right to do it under Section 29 in New York and Section 40 in New Jersey. And along that line, you know, it's an older case, but I just found some of the language, you know, pretty apropos in this scenario. Uh, it's a case called Skakandi versus State. It's from 1948, but uh, the concept holds true. Uh, some of the selected lines from, you know, the dicta in the case. The assignment resulting by operation of Section 29 aforesaid is an absolute one. The statutory assignment having become operative, the carrier was under no duty to prosecute against the third party and had full authority to compromise and settle, even for a lesser amount than it had paid by way of compensation. And this is sort of what I was just talking about, where you get in with the guerrilla warfare style tactics and you get in and you get your settlement and it's maybe it's two thirds. Maybe it's only two thirds of what your ultimate exposure is, but guess what? You got that two thirds back two years earlier than you would have gotten it had the claimant done it. Right, right. And I think <clears throat> replenishing that uh, on the workers' comp side, I mean, maybe it's not in the same basket, but if we talk about it from a balance sheet perspective, knowing that the bottom line of a case is lower earlier actually can incentivize us on the, on the workers' comp side to settle at a value that is more reasonably like to lead to quicker closures, right? Right, and that's something we're, we'll get into in a, in a couple moments is, you know, the concept of a global settlement as a means of just reducing your overall exposure and, in fact, shortening the time toward closure. But, uh, you know, in some instances, uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite New Jersey appellate division decisions, I absolutely love this one because it's completely bonkers and just unheard of in the legal profession. Well, let uh, me just stop you right there. <laughs> Anytime someone tells you that it's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite legal cases, that's an attorney you should hire, right? Like <laughs> you, you want an attorney who's an absolute nerd <laughs> and just loves reading this stuff uh, so let's yes oh you're telling oh, you're, the floor is yours for this one this one of your favorite 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 cases chris you, you mean to tell me that you don't read this to your children instead of good night moon <laughs> see now now if my wife heard this she'd be worried that i actually have children so uh so the just... answer is i hope not <laughs> <laughs> so yes let's talk about your favorite 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 
case, Chris. Yes. Uh, let's put the Segway hat on and uh, tell me why this is such an important uh, issue here. So it's a fairly recent one from New Jersey, December 2018. And uh, yes, it was covered on a prior Third Friday podcast. Uh, there's a very few things we do miss. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who was, were you the guest? I, well, maybe. <laughs> but uh, so it's an appellate division decision from New Jersey. Uh, Formal caption is New Jersey Transit Corporation, ASO, David Mercogliano. ASO is as of so it's the employer as Subrigia of the claimant. Which could be you, client, someday. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the general theme we're going for. Uh, versus uh, Sanchez. And what's interesting about this case is it actually, for one of the first times that I've ever seen, afforded the carrier a greater right than that of the petitioner themselves. If you think about the concept of subrogation just from an overall perspective, the idea is stepping into the shoes of the claimant or petitioner. You're subrogated to the rights only to the extent that they would have had a cause of action. Well, this is just glorious for workers' comp carriers in New Jersey. There's a nasty little thing that circles in the New Jersey motor vehicle personal injury world referred to as the verbal threshold. And without going completely down the rabbit hole, essentially, you need to have some demonstrable form of permanency at the almost at the outset of the case. It can be raised as an affirmative defense, and it's a, it's a death knell for a lot of these motor vehicle claims. Uh, and so this is a case where the petitioner's own claim would have been barred by the verbal threshold. His injuries weren't enough to meet it. And the workers' comp uh, let's just call them carrier, even though it was the New Jersey Transit Corporation. The workers' comp carrier subrogated, stepped in, did their Section 40 thing, uh, and said, actually, no, we should be allowed to sustain this suit, and the appellate division agreed. And they said, no, no, the Workers' Compensation Act in New Jersey is separate and distinct from the whole verbal threshold issue. So, you know, you were intended to have this right to recover for to make sure there's no double recovery, and you should get it, notwithstanding the fact that the petitioner couldn't sustain this suit on his own. Right. That's that's the key there, right? So we usually think, like you said, of stepping into the shoes of a petitioner or a claimant. In this case, the petitioner had no right to bring a third-party action, and the Workers' Compensation Act in New Jersey actually allowed the carrier to file the subrogation action. And... Yes, you're right. Like that, that is that is such an insane concept that it's almost like instead of stepping into the shoes, it's like it's like taking their feet, like cutting it <laughs> off, and now I have four feet because but, I have stuff that you don't know, you don't even have anymore. And if you think about the practical application, if you're dealing with a case that's going to be barred by the verbal threshold, it's a pretty low value comp claim, right? If this guy's going to have no demonstrable form of permanency in the third party case. Chances are his comp case is not going to be worth all that much. So you're talking about something you push to closure very quickly and then would otherwise slam your ledger shut and call it a day because the, you know there's no money coming back on the subro side. Well, that's not the case if you actually pay attention to the developments in the law. <laughs> so that, That's true, right? It's not comparing uh, what you would have had if the claimant had a right to sue. It's comparing what you have to zero because in the typical – Typical case, I think a re I think a reasonable, you know, maybe maybe a below average attorney at a, someone who at a firm that was not a full service law firm would actually think if the claimant does not have an opportunity to file a third party civil action, neither do I. Then I wouldn't do it exactly. Right. But this case demonstrates not just an idea 
but a real like way of life outside of the workers' compensation claim. Right? right. And there's a high probability if you have a case that would be barred by the verbal threshold, there's a high probability that by filing the complaint as the comp carrier, we're going to have one of those situations we talked about earlier where it's how much money to make this go away? How much before I don't have to file an answer? Will you take $25,000? Sure. It's 25000 I otherwise wouldn't have had, you know, depending on what the value of the comp case was ultimately or, or no how about 40 <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right that actually happened <laughs> oh, well. there's a specific the, the reimbursement in one case we subrogated was twenty seven thousand dollars and it ultimately settled for 40 i love that so, you're, i love that you're giggling about it it's like we're two peas in a pot yeah it was are you I, gonna finish my sentences later it was this again favorite 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 case uh <laughs> so uh there's actually uh an analogous situation in new york uh where we deal with you know, the nasty world of no fault. And this is something where uh, I'm sure every, every comp adjuster at some point in their career has dealt with a belligerent third-party attorney who says, no, it's a motor vehicle accident. There's a 50K carve-out to your lien. You get back whatever it is, minus 50, less one-third. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that is the application, but not always. And it's far, far too often conceded outright. So perfect example. We had a case where a third-party attorney tried to tell us, no reimbursement right for you. You know, motor vehicle accident. Okay, we had a New York claimant. We had a New York employer. We had a New York Workers' Compensation Board claim. We had a New York third-party action. Everything about this case was in New York. Except for, for it. Except for one little fact. The accident happened on the wrong side of the Lincoln Tunnel. It was oh, in wait, wait, why, is the, why is that the wrong <laughs> side? Well... For the purposes of this third-party attorney, okay. it was the wrong okay. side. You don't want to hate on New Jersey too much, okay? No, Jersey City is lovely this time of year. <laughs> Just one, one city. One city. Uh, so... It happened. So this accident happens just inside New Jersey state lines, right? That alone is enough to get rid of that 50K carve-out because the standard is arises from the user operation of a motor vehicle in this state. And if you break that down into its individual components, there's a couple other elements to analyze there, not just in this state, but user operation. What's user operation? Well, it turns out there are cases out there that say, that say hanging off a cherry picker to fix a telephone pole and, you know, you just happen to wipe out while you're standing on it and, you know, it was connected to a truck and you fall down. That's not user operation of a motor vehicle. That's user operation of a cherry picker that happens to be connected to a motor vehicle. Uh, there's a guy that died from hyperthermia because his AC wouldn't turn on. Died in a car doesn't mean it's subject to no fault. It's not using the motor vehicle as a motor vehicle. Uh, what's a motor vehicle? Surprise, surprise, motorcycles aren't. So, I mean, these are things to consider when these third-party attorneys are waving around that, that giant flag they love to call the 50K carve-out and trying to slap comp carriers with it. Right. I actually think that the louder that they scream, or I guess the more they use caps lock in their emails, makes me actually think to look into it more. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's not an automatic uh, deduction from your reimbursement amount. And it's one of the things that, you know, we've been very vigilant about because those are actual dollars recovered, right? Right. And it goes, it goes beyond that, too. We're going to go back to, you know, the beginning where we say assess the facts at file intake. Do your investigation then. Because just like in 
New Jersey, where there's that suit for the verbal threshold, even though the petitioner wouldn't have it. New York affords the workers' comp carrier a right that the claimant doesn't have. Granted, it's in very limited circumstances, but it's intercompany loss transfer. And yes, there's a third Friday podcast on that too. <laughs> now, uh, just really, really knows how to sell, <laughs> sell himself in my podcast. You'll never guess who the guest was. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, very specific circumstances, 6,500 pounds unlaid, any vehicle in the accident, doesn't have to be the one that caused the accident, any vehicle in the accident, 6,500 pounds unladen, meaning not loaded up, or uh, principally used for hire for the transportation of persons or property. So limousines, taxis, FedEx, UPS, etc. So when the case meets one of those requirements, the carrier is permitted to recover the first 50K paid in lieu of first party benefits from the libel third party carrier, the guy that's being sued on the civil end, essentially. And this is money that otherwise would be unavailable due to this carve out. And it's something that, you know, a full service defense firm would offer because this is a, this is a subrogation opportunity. This is something you don't have to wait for the claimant to file their third party suit to do. The right to loss transfer exists independent of the right to a civil cause of action. Yeah. I think that's I think that's a great point because uh, it it changes the narrative a little bit, right? It it changes the mindset from thinking this is what I'm recovering, and it just it just taking a closer look and seeing if you could get more than that, right? Right, and and this is uh, you know just to go back to something I just mentioned. Uh, in lieu of first party benefits is a uh, is a funny term, and like everything else in New York, uh, they went through painstaking lengths. They being the legislature, to uh, over describe it. But uh, so we have necessary medical treatment, right? Is considered basic economic loss, which is part of first party benefits. Uh, the other thing is loss of earnings up to two k per month, two thousand dollars per month, for not more than three years. So. Workers' comp paid in lieu of first-party benefits. Those are essentially our first-party benefits. There are offsets we can get into another time. Uh, if you think about it from a practical perspective, up to $2,000 per month, if you have a high-wage-earning claimant and they're getting the maximum total disability rate, they're getting $900 per you know, right. or thereabouts. It's just about the max. They're getting $900 per week, right? $3,600 per month in indemnity. 2000 of that, okay, may be subject to the carve-out, assuming we can't get away with one of our exceptions. Uh, $1,600 of, $1, of that is just straight Section 29 money. We have a right of approximately two-thirds reimbursement on that or a right of subrogation on it if the guy doesn't bring his own suit. Uh, same thing with the three years limitation on the loss of earnings. If you have a case that drags on for years and just so happens to reach permanency three years after the date of loss, there's no 50k carve out against that permanency award. That's right, right. That, that I mean that's essentially depending on how you word your consent letter, a dollar for dollar credit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's getting into a little bit of uh, That's podcast number 6. That's I think that's getting a little bit into how the sausage is made and I want to make sure that we're uh we're being uh totally totally kosher here. Right. But, uh, interestingly enough, right? If I'm a workers compensation carrier, I want to know if a settlement on a third party side is being contemplating contemplated, what does it do for my workers' compensation case? And that's really the crux of how we work together, right? Uh, so, so tell me, you know, what 
what is the best advice we can give workers' compensation adjusters when this third-party settlement comes in? Uh, maybe you might have a case to tell me about. I don't know if it's one of your favorite, favorite, favorites, but you, I'm sure you have something. Listen, right? tri- triple favorite is a very high standard. To drop the, to drop the favorite word three times consecutively, you've got to be a special case for that. Uh, but So I think this is what I mentioned a little earlier, the concept of the global settlement. And this is, believe it or not, these aren't just things happening. There's not just a comp claim and then there's a third-party case happening and they're just off in their own respective ethers. This is literally something we could be leveraging, something we could be using. The very fact that there's a third-party case can motivate change in the workers' comp claim. So one of my personal favorites, not favorite, favorite, favorites, uh, Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator. This is a New York uh, third department case. And uh, there's multiple holdings. It's It's a decision I suggest everyone read at some point. But what the practical effect of it has been Normally, the only way a claimant can waive the right to workers' comp benefits in New York is a Section 32 waiver agreement. That's why it's called the waiver agreement, not a Section 32 settlement, technically. Uh, So this case, Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator, says you can essentially suspend as of the date of the consent letter if the third-party action settles first because you can take the right to a dollar-for-dollar credit as of the date of the consent agreement. So what this means is you can finalize your section 29 lien months in advance of the comp case settling and you can even agree to have the uh have the claimant assume responsibility for payment of medical treatment in the interim and this is if you have you know uh a busy uh busy hearing location or you're not going to be able to get desk review or that 32 hearings out way further than you thought it would be this is a way to sort of pause your exposure while you make this harmonious, simultaneous resolution happen. Uh, And this is, again, something to consider just in terms of overall exposure. Uh, Let's say we're trying to leverage a third-party settlement like I mentioned earlier. We know, thanks to permanency values and tables, you know, we have a very good way of forecasting what a comp case is going to be worth because it's pretty much prescribed by statute up to a certain point, right? And we're dealing with, you know, workers' compensation coverage, and it's sort of very predictable. Well, that's not always the case on the GL side. Sometimes the policy limits are a million dollars, sometimes five million, sometimes there's an excess carrier, sometimes there's an umbrella policy. You never know. But you could have a guy walk away with, let's just say, a $250,000 or thereabout value LWEC classification in New York, right? And a $5 million third-party settlement. Well, guess who doesn't want to sit around all day and wait for his $5 million settlement (laughs) to happen? And this is your opportunity as the comp carrier to say, boy, if you would like those millions in your pocket, it sure would be great if you'd settle your comp case. There's nothing wrong about doing that. It's just saying we won't take back the money we've paid on this case if you'll just close it out. And then everyone walks away happy. You get, we don't take anything from your case. You get it today and we're all done. And you'd be surprised what a strong motivation that is for some of these claimants that are otherwise inclined to treat into perpetuity. So just close it out. And it actually creates a little bit of a – I don't want to – I guess conflict might be a, a, a strong word here. But you have a workers' compensation attorney that uh, maybe reasonably or maybe a little nefariously uh, encouraging a claimant to stay out of work or going to see a doctor for uh, – 
reasons that may not be involved with with the injuries just to keep up the appearance of a person who is severely injured i'm not naming any names but i know that it happens uh if you see a claimant going to the doctor once every 90 days on the 90th day it's something to take notice the one who brings the up-to-date medical on on the day of the hearing that's that's a classic (laughs) see those those types of cases right they have one authority figure and that's the workers compensation attorney they file a third-party claim, and now the civil attorney is now saying, I can't release your $5 million because the workers' compensation carrier has to consent to the settlement. And now they're pushing back on wanting to get this $5 million that you're talking about, and all of a sudden, medical starts drying up. Yeah, all right? of a sudden, somebody else is holding all the cards right. because we have to give, in New York at least, formal written consent we're not obligated to give it. I mean, unfortunately, we're not out to do anyone any favors here. I mean, this is this is our way of taking care of our own interests. And if we withhold our consent and they decide, well, we're unreasonably withholding it, well, sure, that's your argument. File the NPT motion, the non-pro-tunk motion, and seek to have the settlement compelled. Or you could just settle and we'll give you our consent and we'll be done with it. <laughs> it's a great point. It's a great point, Chris, because... It actually leads to what we've been talking about this entire time, right? It's like the 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 grenades that we're throwing in the rowboat, the the, the jeopardy that we're creating with risk transfer, uh, loss transfer, any kind of subrogation action that's leading to more dollars potentially back in the reimbursement pool gets you to the point where you are now at a higher leveraged position to close the case. Right? And that's where everything comes together to show you that we really are defending from day one. Right? So Full service defense from day one. Full Let's put it service that way. defense. <laughs> I feel like I can't use that phrase to, together unless you're back on the, on the pod. Well, like, you know, yeah, if I so, say full service with some other guests here, it's not going to feel the same. It's not yeah, natural. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I trademarked that in advance of this podcast. I wouldn't so. put it past you. I mean, you have your, your favorite, favorite, favorite cases, your favorite cases. You yeah. know, I know you, you stay up uh, late at night to read for two hours. Maybe it's mm-hmm. cases. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But you're definitely reading. <laughs> Uh, but I, I get it. I get it. We're, we're now, we're now at the point where we can present a different, a different motivation, uh, to close a case. Cause that's where, that's what we're here to do. Right. Right. So for Christopher major, my name is Christian Cison reminding you to defend from day one.